Peace. This is Mark Winston Griffith, producer and host of School Colors. And this is Max Friedman, the other producer and host of School Colors. We're excited to be able to bring you the recording of a special event we had on a rainy night earlier this week, December 17th. In an auditorium at the Brooklyn Public Library, we spoke to Christina Vega, a reporter from Chalkbeat, New York, the essential nonprofit education news organization. We were joined by a voice you should recognize from School Colors, Naquan McLean, president of the Community Education Council for District 16. If you've been following School Colors, I hope you'll find our conversation pulls back the curtain a bit on how we created this podcast and where we're going next. And we got some really thoughtful questions from Christina and the audience that night, digging deeper into some of the topics and themes of the show. Enjoy. In every episode, you open saying that it's a, it's a podcast about race and class and power, these really big, meaty themes. But you started with a pretty narrow question, which was why are District 16 schools so under-enrolled? So District 16 includes Bedford-Stuyvesant and has been basically hemorrhaging students for years now. So I'm just curious, could you walk us through the evolution of the reporting? Because you started off with what, you know, a single question, and here we are. I'll, I'll just say that uh, I really think it was, in many ways, it was Max's idea, actually. Um, we, we had a struggle. There was so much material. There were so many interviews. The issues we were looking at were so complex, and so we were really looking for an access point. And we, we just had, some, had, to, had to make some choices. And it seemed like this question um, of schools being under-enrolled, while it might seem simple on the surface, kind of led us to a lot of, a lot of other conversations. And so you know, I don't remember what was going on in the production room at that time. But we, we stumbled upon that. And again, I think it was Max's idea. And we just we thought that that was the best way to the access point that would just lead us in a lot of different directions. Is that how you remember it? Yeah, I think, I think this is how it happened chronologically. Um, so uh, this project started as my thesis in graduate school um, in the fall of 2015. And at that time, the Brooklyn Movement Center, which is Mark's organization, was still doing parent organizing and parent organizing specifically in District 16. So this started with me just going up to Mark and saying, I see that you're doing this work. Is there a way? I knew that I wanted to research the relationship between schools and neighborhoods over time. Um, is there a way that I can do this uh, that supports your work? Um, and so we started just by looking at the numbers. We looked at the numbers and saw that enrollment was falling like that. Um, but at, this, at like the exact same time, if you've, if you've heard episode eight, um, we start episode eight with the story of this rezoning fight between PS8 and PS307 in Brooklyn Heights and Dumbo. And so the fall, late summer, early fall of 2015, and that was going down as well. Um, and I went to a couple of the hearings around that. And I saw the, the, the conflicts, which I won't, I won't recap right now because it's complicated. But um, you, know, you heard this mostly white, mostly pretty well-to-do parents who objected to being rezoned into a school that mostly um, serves students in public housing. Um, and then I went to talk to the PTA president of that school, Faraji Hannah-Jones, and the, very, like, the first thing out of his mouth when I sat down to talk to him was to tell me about World War II and the Brooklyn Navy Yard and who originally lived in this, this, this public housing. And, it, it, and to then, to then to bring that all the way forward, and in a way, understanding that it, we had to go that far back started there. It started with like, oh, obviously what's happening is about these kids, but there's different groups of people who are coming into this situation with such vastly disparate um, 
po points of view, but also frames of reference in terms of the, the depth of these struggles. So from there on in, it was, it was intuitive that this needed to be a big and long story. Um, how it turned from my thesis into a podcast is another thing, but. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there have been things that are, you truncated there. Um, I mean, I think there were, there were parallel tracks. There was the research that Max was doing, and we had been doing not only organizing, but we'd also written a report on community school district 16. So we had developed a lot of relationships. But one thing in particular when we were talking about school under enrollment was, I don't know if you remember this, Naquan, but there were some parents, there were some, there were some proposed mergers going on, right? And our role, that is the Brooklyn Movement Center, what we wanted to do was just make sure that these parents had a voice, that they realized their own voice, and that they knew some of the research and statistics. And so we had done, some, we looked at enrollment patterns, we looked at rise of charter schools because there was, there, was, there was some charter school factors there. And you were in the middle of all of that. You were talking to some of those parents and there was a, there was a lot of conversation around how are we going to react to this? So, I mean, how did you, how did you, how did you view this issue? So I, I remember it, we were actually at, uh, we had like a retreat and we were there and we were discussing this is when we were under the former superintendent, um, well, the former, former superintendent, um, and when we, District 16 was one of the first districts that did mergers when they first came out with, you know, consolidations. That was what the first name was, and now it's called mergers. Um, we were having conversations about why are we here? How did we get here? And you all had did a lot of um, research for us and were bringing you were working. That's when I actually was on CEC, but I was co-chair of President's Council, so it was me and Marta. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of reasons, th things that we can say how we got, got here, and we're probably going to get to that a little bit later, but I think one of the things that I've taken from this is we're here, how do we get out of here? How do we get out of this? But what people need to understand that District 16 is the smallest district in the city of New York, but that District 32 actually came out of District 16, and a lot of people don't know that, that District 32 was a part of District 16. Um, and, you know, there was uh, people don't want to go to school with other folks, and it, they did a split. But I don't want to take... I well, don't that's a take, that was explored in the podcast, right? Do you want to talk a little bit about what happened with District 32 and 16? Uh, yeah, the short version is that um, District 16 was a really big district when the districts were drawn in 1970. Um, and Bushwick at that time was predominantly Italian-American, i.e. white and Bed-Stuy has been for a long time predominantly black, and the Italian-American parents in Bushwick essentially stood up and said, like, hey, we want community control. We're not being represented by this mostly black uh, school board in District 16, and the city cut the district in half uh, and gave that to them. And then, of course, almost immediately thereafter, the, that neighborhood started to change and became primarily Latinx. But Yeah, and I would say that when it comes to the under-enrollment in the district, it wasn't like we approached the podcast like, okay, we, we have these answers, now we're just going to lay them out. In, in many ways, doing the podcast was our attempt to try to answer for ourselves what was happening because, again, in these meetings with the, with the parents who were, you know, they had their schools being merged, they, there were so many questions about identity. Um, I mean, they weren't thinking about the district, right? They were thinking of their children and their school, and yet this was happening all across the, the area, and so there was a pattern, and we could not find one reason to explain what was happening, and so that's what led us. So. And so, 
the answers or the exploration of that question led you way back, way back. Right. So I want to um, hear from you guys why you started, if you could explain a little bit Weeksville, what Weeksville is, um, and why you decided to start your reporting and the series there. Um, so uh, we always knew that we wanted the, the one of the th main themes, if not the main theme of the podcast to be about black self-determination. Um, and Weeksville is like the, the point of origin for that in, in Brooklyn, you could say. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's, a, maybe that's an overstatement. But it is certainly a landmark in terms of that story in Brooklyn. It was an independent um, free black community founded in, in Brooklyn um, in what's now District 16 in the 1830s. Um, and there's a heritage uh, cultural center on that site now, but it had been forgotten about for many, many years until the, uh, the late 60s when some students um, actually started to excavate that site. And so uh, there was the settlement, and then, there, then, of course, they had all these neighborhood institutions, including a school. So why did you, why was it important to go that far back, I guess? Well, as Max said, black identity and, and black self-determination was central to what we were talking about. And here was a, a neighborhood that existed and then had been forgotten, um, that almost disappeared to some extent for, for a period of time. In fact, literally, it had to be excavated. Um, when they first sort of revived the memory of Weeksville, one of the ways they did it was, was I think, from a helicopter and taking aerial views, and you can actually see the footprint of it there. So, you know, it, there was evidence of a, of a civilization there, and it made us reflect on central Brooklyn, is that 150 years from now, someone might be saying, there was once, a, you know, a neighborhood of black people there. What the hell happened? Um, and and you'll, you'll talk about Bedford-Stuyvesant or Crown Heights, you talk about Central Brooklyn, they're like, oh, well, I've never heard of it. You know, people literally had never heard of Weeksville. Um, and so we think of these things as living in memory in perpetuity, but no, we can be forgotten like that. And when you, when you look at District 16, it really, in many ways, can be seen through the lens of erasure. And, you know, a community and a culture slowly sort of fading away. And so that, I think that's what the inspiration was for going to Weeksville. I think there's a moment in the first episode where you sort of laugh and um, whoever you're interviewing says what, what's going on and you say, just we've been having these same, this has been happening for 150 years now, the same arguments over schools and integration and um, who gets to have power and decision making. Um, so I thought that was a really powerful moment. Right. So white, white families started moving into Weeksville <laughs> in the 1870s. And just like white families moving into Bed-Stuy in the 2010s, uh, people were talking about it. Even using some of the same language. It's yeah, I mean, and, and I don't think we fully anticipated that, right? We were, oh, I, didn't know th I didn't know that. We, we were listening to, I mean, it, you, you were witness to that, right? We were sitting here listening to this and the same dynamic, same language was coming up, and we're like, oh shit. You know, I mean, we, we think of ourselves as being so special and have arrived at these moments in a, in a singular and unique way, and it was remarkable to, to know that that was not the case. I, I, I'd be interested to know, I mean, in terms of the history, not only Weeksville, but the other things that we tackled, how much of that is something you knew before, and how much of that sort of is woven into any of the work that you do? So I actually live one block from um, CS21. I never knew that CS21 
was built for the Brevoy housing. I did not know that they had morning classes and afternoon sessions. I've lived in District 16 all of my life. And what this park has did was bring some of these things to my mind to make, to energize me more of why we need to fight harder to have this district succeed. Because at this point, it looks like the district is gonna phase itself out as Dr. Lester Young says. But I think if we could make some slight changes, they're not major changes that we need to make. I think it will take us in the right direction, but it's gonna need, it's gonna take all of us to make those changes. It's not easy. And when we get ready to talk about charter schools and that stuff, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it. But I think this, this podcast really, I've been talking to a lot of DOE folks telling them, you need to listen to this so that you can understand why we, what we're saying. You know, I tweeted the chancellor to ask him to come tonight. It, it's very important that people understand the fight that we're in. I remember going to meetings when I first got on the CEC, and they would go 13, 14, 17. They was like, skip District 16 because we weren't present. We weren't in the room. And that's one of the reasons why we're in the state that we're in now. Hey, School Colors listeners, my name is Zoe. I'm a high school student and a reporter for the Miseducation podcast, which takes you inside the New York City school system to explore stories of race and inequality from the perspective of students. If you like School Colors, chances are you like Miseducation too. We've covered everything from specialized high school admissions to racial disparities in sports access, and we have a brand new season on the way. Listen to Miseducation wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what you think. We're on Twitter and Instagram at MissEducationPod. Now, back to Mark and Max. So, after going through the history of Weeksville, you guys kind of do a crash course on redlining and school segregation and some of the first integration efforts in the city, and then you bring us up to the teacher strikes in the 60s and... I thought I had known the story of Ocean Hill-Brownsville and the teacher strikes, but I had never heard it in the way that you guys presented it from the point of views and the narrative um, that you guys were able to present. And so I would love to hear, and, and it often felt like I was there, like inside of the school. What I appreciated was there were perspectives from inside of the schools of what was going on inside. and. There's another moment that stands out in my head before where um, I think it's Monifa talks about being on a school bus that's being rocked. She's being um, bused as part of an integration plan and all of these white mothers surround the bus and rock it and they're screaming so loudly she can see their tonsils. And so I would love to hear from you guys um, how you were able to get such um, vivid storytelling and why it was important for you during the um, strike episode to go inside of schools like 270, 271, was it? Um, to tell the, the story from that perspective, because that was new to me. I, I just want to point, like, the, even just the way you said it in this conversation was like, you bring us up to the teacher strike. And I'm like, the teacher strike doesn't happen until you have an experiment in community control. Um, but the way that the story has been told for 50 years is about the teacher strike. I understand why, right? If it bleeds, it leads. That was an ugly fight that a lot of people remember. 
Um, but again, what we were trying to talk about on this podcast was about self-determination and what this was, we, the story that we wanted to tell was about this community that was trying to educate its own. Um, that was pushed to the point by episodes by what, to, like what happened to Monifa where they said this is what we have to do um, if we're going to have a future for our kids. Uh, and so that's what we wanted to, to, to put as the driving force of the story. Um, and it just mostly has not been told that way and has not been told by the people who, who has not been told by the people who are inside. And I, I want to shout out Charlie Isaacs, who was in the podcast, who wrote a book called Inside Ocean Hill Brownsville, A Teacher's Education um, in 2013 or 2014. It's the first book written by somebody who was actually a part of it. Um, and it took almost 50 years for that book to, to, to be written and to be published. Um, and Charlie also was the one who then connected us to Monifa, who had been his student. And then Monifa connected, uh, connected us to these, all these other students who, who were still friends 50 years later. Um, and so from a reporting point of view, that's how that happened. Yeah, and you know, I, Max had read several books on Ocean Hill Brownsville. Um, and my experience of Ocean Hill Brownsville was, was a little different. I mean, I think it was, it was personal on some level for you. For me, it was all personal. Um, in the sense that, you know, even if I, go, if I go back 20 years and you look at remarks or speeches I made, for instance, when I was part of starting a credit union back in the early 90s, I cite Ocean Hill Brownsville. My parents and family, as you've heard, they weren't just in Ocean Hill Brownsville and on, on the picket line, but they were also teachers at 271. And so 271 for me was a gateway into this world. Now, I think we do the rest of the experiment a little bit of a disservice in that we focus so much on 271 and you would barely know that there are other, there are other schools that were part of this experimental district. But 271 was a symbol for so many. Um, it was a staging ground for this, for this battle. And again, you will hear us say self-determination over and over and over again. So many of the people who end up in the podcast later on, so many of the struggles that we talk about, they all, there's a, there's a straight line going right through Ocean Hill Brownsville. So there's no way to tell the story without it. In that vein, I'm curious to hear from you, Naquan. Did or has Ocean Hill Brownsville affected your activism at all, or has it at all been a motivating factor? Like, why do you do what you do, and how do you keep it up? And... And do you also draw that line, I guess? So, yeah. So when oh, I live maybe 10 blocks from 271, um, and I've always, as a child, heard of the story, heard of, and but they really talked about the strike, the teacher strike, and where it took us. Um, how I got involved, I was a parent that was dropping off my children at a, my zone school, and I noticed that there was a lot of fathers taking their child there um, and not the mom. So I was having a conversation and I'll do this real quickly with the parent coordinator around what what do you all have here? What, 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 what do you have for dads? Are dads involved? And they were like, oh, we really don't have anything. So we started a program called Donuts for Dad. And it was a monthly meeting. It was set for 45 minutes. Some months it went over, but we wanted them to commit. And we talked about everything from the literacy and the science things that were happening with their students to child support and how do you get out of you know, owing money and how do you get assistance in those areas. And I did that for a couple of months and then I ran for 
PTA president at my zone school. Um, and the principal did not like that. So she called a major um, PD where all the te all the kids were a prep, where all the kids were taken outside and her and the AP went outside in the schoolyard with them and all the teachers came in and they voted against me. Um, and <laughs> no, I, re I remember what you told us th that you ran for PTA and you lost, but you didn't, you left out that part of it. Um, <laughs> I want people to come to the district. I'm not trying to scare them. Um, and that was an eye opener for me. So at that time, I was working for an agency called uh, St. Christopher Otley SEO Family Services Family Dynamics, which was a preventive service, but we actually went into doing school-based programming. So I actually knew the principal from running the after-school program, long story. But um, I, then I ran again, and I did this whole letter because I had connections with DYCD, and I talked about all the things that I can bring into the building, and I actually was elected. Um, a couple of years later after the person they wanted was gone, I got elected. And then from that, I became uh, the president, and I became a, a co-president of President's Council, and then went from co-president of President's Council to becoming a CC member, and within the first couple of months I went from being just a member of the CEC to like the vice president and then the next year I became the president. But it all aligns like I take my lead and I, 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 I model Annette Robinson and Al Van. These are people that were on school boards and, and, and people that have um, the, the backs that we stand on and Mark Winston Griffin who was a great support with like as when we got, when, when we first got District 16 to a point where we were being respected and valued, we worked with Mark to like really try to organize parents um, because what we saw was that one of the reasons District 16 was in the state that they were in was that parents voted with their feet. Parents did not want to, even for the school my son goes to, he goes to Brooklyn Brownstone. That was a school that was created by the parents of the community, but when the school finally opened, the parents decided that they did, wasn't going to send their kids there. So, you know, those are the challenges that we have faced in the past about this value of our community. So those are the things that make me do what I do every day. I spend hours negotiating with the DOE um, to get things for our district. And I think sometimes people want Everything doesn't have to be said out front. You don't have to do a lot of the things that you do publicly. I give them enough of backroom talk that when I go public, they know I'm going public and they know I'm going to say what I need to say. But I think listening to this podcast, it like I was on the tr um, plane coming back. I can't remember what episode, but I had tears in my eyes because I'm like, this is the same thing that they were fighting for. We're 50, 60 years later are in the same situation. It made some things maybe a little bit different, but it's serious, and it, it, we value education, and when I say we, black and brown people value education just like everyone else, and I think that has been one of the problems that we've faced under Bloomberg, and that's when District 16 actually began to demise under Bloomberg and charter schools and when they took our G&T program out of 308 in that type of situation. I'm going to kind of skip ahead a little then. So, no, this is good because I'm glad that you um, invoked some of the names of the leaders whose footsteps you see yourself following. And um, so, for a long time, there was this push or fight for 
community control, which led to, I guess, what's now called decentralization. And now we're having conversations about mayoral control of schools, which is set to expire in 2022. Um, and so... Every couple of years, it's set to expire. And every right. couple of years, it doesn't. Um, but you were part of a push um, last session to try to get some changes. Um, which I understand is why we're having public conversations now about um, sort of the way forward. And so I would love for you to tie, I guess, some of the these long-standing um, problems that District 16 has been struggling with up into the power structure that we have now for governing schools and where you think um, the city and District 16 needs to go. So um, there has not been a significant change in New York State Education Law 2590E since the consumption of mayoral control until last year. 2590E. Uh, 2590E is the actual law that governs CECs. Um, and there has- Alphabet soup. Yeah. So CECs. CECs, I'm sorry. The community education councils, which would be a form of community control with the little teeth we do have. Um, so since when Bloomer came in and he got mayoral control and they dismantled uh, school boards, which school boards was a challenge. Uh, I hear stories about how, you know, this school received this because their person was on the school board and this school received that because, you know, their cousin was a school board member and different things like that. But to fast forward to where we're at now, this year we were able to go up to Albany and lobby Albany to make some changes. So, for instance, the Community Education Council members, they were chosen by the PTA president, treasurer, and secretary of the school. How is three people making a decision for a whole school? So what we did was able to lobby them that in 2021, which they're working on now, Every parent that has a child in traditional public school will be able to vote for the CEC. The CEC members, um, we will now have a PEP representative. The mayor still will have majority, but now just as the bubble presidents have a representative, the parents will now have a representative that suppose to vote with our interests. PEP is the citywide um, body that... It's really the central um, board of education. That is the, the um, that board that makes the final decisions um, of policies, contracts, um, school closures, school openings. Um, that body makes it. But on another hand, what we were able to do is get a little more teeth. CCs uh, will have to now submit a resolution in favor or against any proposal that is going before the PEP. The PEP does have the right to not accept the proposal that the community make, but they have to then justify why they went a different direction. So those are just a little bit of the changes that we were able to make in this law. We would like to see definitely more changes. Um, we don't think that mayoral control is the right um, solution, but we don't know what it is. And that's why we now have a commission. On yesterday, they had their first, um, well, it's not a commission because they didn't want a commission, but yesterday they f held their first hearing on mayoral control and there'll be hearings going off and I encourage people to go to those hearings and to voice your opinions because Albany is making the decisions for us and I don't think that's right neither but I don't think it should be in the hands of the mayor and I don't think it should be in the hands of city council neither but I think there needs there's there's a balance that could be made what that balance is we need to decide but it sounds like parents are trying to claw back 
a little bit more of the decision making. So we have to start wrapping up so we can start taking questions from you guys. I know you have burning questions that you can't wait to ask. And so I would like to, in the vein of sort of looking forward, um, ask Mark and Max, uh, so what are the next steps for you guys? Um, I believe you're thinking about how to try to get this into the hands of educators. Can you talk a little bit about where you hope this leads? Because the season is done, but it's not over, right? Yeah, and just someone today said, oh, so is there going to be a, a season two? <laughs> um, yeah, this is not Game of Thrones, guys. Um, <laughs> You know, I mean, we, we, you know, we put all we had <laughs> into that season. Um, and, yeah, we, we, we tried to do it in such a way that we left nothing, nothing left on the table. Um, so I, I, I think what we're thinking about is if we're able to get the, the financial support for it is to really do what this was all about in the first place, which is to facilitate a conversation. So what we've been talking about is the idea of perhaps putting together a curriculum that can be used in schools and PTAs and community-based organizations that can be used as this city is making changes, not just, these changes are not just happening in schools, they're happening in institutions and in, you know, parking lots and uh, schools everywhere across the city. And so we want to be a part of helping to have that conversation because we saw destructive conversations going on within Central Brooklyn, and we w this podcast was to try to help folks navigate it. And so that that's one thing. But you know, the sky's the limit, and you know, um, Max needs to get paid. Uh, he needs a full time job, and so I think he's looking at that right now. I see I see reporters. I was like, yeah, that's that's real. Um, so yeah, we we're not exactly sure what what the future is going to look like. What do you think? Um, yeah, I mean, I, in a way, I think we, what we want to happen is I want it to come full circle in the sense that when we started, Brooklyn Movement Center was doing parent organizing. Um, and then I, I guess I'll be frank about it. I think we said this in the podcast, like there, there was no money left for parent organizing. So we, which is the first thing that really provoked us to go towards journalism instead. Um, I don't even stay, whatever, to do, to, to, it's the, that's the first thing that happened that sent us towards the podcast. So now that the podcast is done, we want to bring it back to, we want to feed it back into the organizing because that was always the intent. And we just need to find the resources to do that. At the same time, um, we are scheming to get certain parts of School Colors onto other podcasts that have a more national audience. I will not name them, but uh, if you're into podcasts, hopefully this is going to show up on a couple of podcasts that you know and love. Yeah, and I'll say that uh, on some level, I think we want to just acknowledge that we kind of lucked up here, you know, um, in that the timing just happened to work out perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we wanted to get this done two years ago, let's <laughs> be real. Um, and we were not happy with the fact that it has taken this long. In fact, we had a relationship with NYU, and NYU was like, yo, what's up? Um, you were supposed to have done this a long time ago. So, but it just... I think, I think people have responded to it in a way because there's so many conversations that are going on within New York right now that this you know, that is resonating for people. I don't know if we can replicate that going forward, right? Um, and I don't know exactly wh what the issue would be, but for me, I think, I think this was a perfect storm, and we're like, okay, that worked. Let's not, <laughs> let's, 
not uh, push our luck here. Yeah, I mean, to be specific about the timing, I mean, there are things that happen in the story that we only, that right. were part of the story because it took us so long to do it. Um, if we had finished earlier, actually, it would have been much less interesting. Things would have been much left, as, as, un, as unresolved as they are, they would have been even more unresolved. And also the fact that the District uh, 16 diversity planning process started literally today so that we get the opportunity to feed into that and see how it affects the way that that goes down is, uh, it's, means a lot to us. Right. I mean, the, the super, the, we've been, this has been a turnover in superintendents. The Bed-Stuy Parents Committee at the time we started this was like, you know. What's the Bed-Stuy Parents Committee? Well, I, I would hope that anyone who's listened to the podcast would know Bed-Stuy Parents Committee, but Bed-Stuy Parents Committee it was a group that, was organi that started organizing some years ago as a way to... Um, address the fact that there were parents who's, who were sending their kids to outside the district. And they wanted to sort of create an environment where they felt comfortable sending their children to uh, school in District 16. And so they created Bed-Stuy Parents Committee as a way to organize parents and as, and as a way to, you know, sort of clear the way in, in different schools for, um, for their children to go. Now, I mean, even just saying that, I imagine that might strike some people a certain way. A lot of folks thought of it you know, as colonization, as again, as we say in, in the podcast, but it was a form of, a legitimate form of, of parent organizing. And we thought that when we were doing the story that it was still gonna be going. And some of the dramatic elements of this were as a result of the fact that they stopped operations in the middle of us doing this reporting. So I think we're gonna throw it on that note. Um, I think you heard send money, um, right? Uh, but I think we're going to throw it over to the audience now um, to take your questions. So, If you've been hearing about the Brooklyn Movement Center and you live in central Brooklyn and you're wondering how you can get involved, I want to tell you about a couple of specific ways. First, are you a renter? You can learn more about your rights consult with a lawyer, or even learn how to start a tenants union in your building by participating in our monthly tenants' rights clinics here at 375 Stuyvesant Avenue. Follow BMC on Facebook and sign up for our email newsletter at brooklynmovementcenter.org to learn more. Second, do you like eating healthy, affordable food? Want to be part of building a black, community-owned food market? Join the Central Brooklyn Food Co-op. We'll be opening our storefront sometime in 2020, but you can become a member today and help shape the vision for this exciting new institution. Uh, my name is Michael Loeb. I'm in District 20. Um, I think the power of the podcast is how specific it is. And fair enough, you need to take a break. But for School Colors Season 2, I'm wondering, <laughs> I'm wondering if you might look at um, Washington Heights, Jackson Heights, uh, East New York, neighborhoods where language and groups of immigrants are um, people who also don't necessarily see um, control of the schools that serve them and their children. I mean, I, I would love to, and I will say also, I will acknowledge something that we, I wanted to address in the final, final episode, but we ended up not doing it, which is that I mean, the picture that we paint of Bed-Stuy is really like black and white. And there are people in Bed-Stuy who are not black and not white. I mean, there's, there's, it's, 
Yeah, Best Eye is more diverse than I think we make it sound. We make it sound. Um, I acknowledge that, especially in the in the northern parts of the district. Um, and so, yeah, it's a different set of challenges in Jackson Heights. I would love to 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 uh, to capture that. I don't know if it needs a. I don't know. I don't know. I well, I don't know enough about it to know if it needs eight episodes. I don't know if I have the strength for eight more episodes. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Yeah, and 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 I'll say this. Um, we could, I mean, I think there would definitely be, as, as reporters, as journalists, I think we would love, we're, we are eager on some level to tackle something else. But I think what we always recognize as being unique about this is our personal connections to it. The inspiration that came from within, the relationships we already had with people that made this a different kind of reporting experience. And quite frankly, you know, the stakes were higher for us, right? I mean, just by example, I mean, I was in a room with half of the people, with four or five people who were in the podcast, had I gotten it wrong, that would have been a very ugly scene in there. And so um, it was important to me that we get this right. Not that we're gentle with people, not that we're overly diplomatic, but that we do our work with integrity, that people hear themselves reflected in it, and that that relationship that we've built with them over these years actually comes to mean something. Because... You know, Naquan will tell you they're, they're, they're reporters who swoop in, they do their story, and don't really give a damn how it lands when they leave. I mean, maybe that's... He's not talking that's about That's going too far. That's, I mean, I won't say they don't give a damn. What I, I guess what I should say is they don't have to live with the consequences of the report. Yes, you can hear me? Uh, my name is Michael I'll Loeb. I'm in District 20. I think, 20. one, it, it is interesting to think about just how different... Broadly, it's the same issues, but how differently they play out on the ground in different communities, which is part, partially why I'm going to be watching the District 16 diversity work with a lot of interest after having followed uh, District 15 in Brooklyn uh, just and District 28 now. I mean, it just couldn't be more different. And I will say that I think bringing your own um, personal perspectives into the story really did make it uh, um, even more interesting and eye-opening, like when you get, can you talk very briefly about when you found out that you had family members on the opposite sides of the strike who ended up working side by side? Like, uh, that what? Was, that was wild. It was mind-blowing. Uh, I mean, it went down exactly as you described it. You went to, you, you tell the story. I mean. Well, I mean, I just saw my uncle last night, and he still hasn't heard the podcast because he's, he's got a phone. He doesn't know how to quite maneuver it. He's, um, he's 86 years old now. Um, I just, I love him to death. He's, he's just a beautiful person. You heard him on there. We have a very special relationship. But I was talking to him, and I was playing, and he heard Jay's voice. And Jay being? Jay being my mom's cousin, who, yeah. There's mom right there. Hi, mom. All right, <laughs> <laughs> go on. Um, yeah, and he recognized the voice immediately. And I just, I played him the segment. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and again, he heard Jay's voice, and he said he just saw Jay uh, a few few weeks ago. Great. And they talked about this, and they bonded over it. So yeah. Yeah. Th so if you if you don't remember the detail, it turns out the uh, we'd already been working on this for a year and a half before we found this out that Neil, uh, your uncle Nielsen, was the principal, and Jay was the assistant principal at the same school in Brownsville for 17 years together. After having um, been on separate separate sides of the. After right. having been on separate sides of the strike, and also like not having nothing to do with the fact that we somehow found each other. Right. Like, I, I, Crazy. I, <laughs> like what? I'll be a little gritty and take two questions. So my first question is, um, I have a lot of thoughts about integration. 
Um, and I, I feel like I want to go and just sit Nicole Hannah-Jones down and just kind of fight with her a little bit. But um, I, I, I do agree. I think Mark or I, I, one of you all said it, that it reinforces this idea that the only way that resources go to school is if white kids are in there. And I didn't really hear a strong counter argument for uh, segregation or, you know, some sort of idea that, you know, my son also went to LSP where there was a very strong African uh, curriculum there. Little sun people. Little sun people. Sorry. Yeah, Mama fella school. Mama fella school. Where my yes. kids went. Episode yes. four. Yes. It's a great school. 100% recommended. Anyway, um, I, besides Ember, I didn't hear a strong argument for you know, so, uh, Afrocentric schools that, you know, are working towards uh, building the resources that black families now have more so than they did in the past. Um, and, you know, again, the idea of the, the resources tug, right? Um, if there was another initiative or something else that was happening along those lines. So that's the first question. Second question is um, going with what I said about, you know, sort of history repeating itself and us sort of back where we were, uh, what makes you all hopeful that it might be different this time around? I'd love to hear from, if you're comfortable taking those questions, I'd love to hear your answers. So two things, and I'm about to put two people on the spot, um, but I'm not going to ask them to speak. I'm just going to ask them to wave their hands. One of the things and the privilege that we have and why I'm optimistic about change is we have a new superintendent, Dr. Yolanda Martin, who's here. Um, and we also have um, a new deputy superintendent for Bayer McIntosh, um, which who was the principal of Right of Choice. Um, and I'm looking at them as our dream team to really take our district to the next level. Um, we have the support of the chancellor uh, District 16, and not this school year, but the previous school year, we had the highest gains in the city of New York. That was not really broadcast. A lot of people didn't talk about it. It was just like, oh, you know, but it was significant. Um, and I think under their leadership, um, we're going to see traction. And I'm, I'm one that says when we talk about equity and access, it should not be. So when they first came to me, and said, we need a diversity plan. I said, for what? What we're diversifying. But when you, because you look at diversity and integration in certain ways, but the way that we're going to look at it and the way that we're going to address it is going to be totally different. So come to the meetings. Let your voice be heard. Because there's nothing from us stopping to have a traditional, not a charter school, but a traditional school that focus only on that area or, or major in that area. You get what I'm saying? So it's really about, that's what I really believe this next step is. And that was one of the reasons that we wanted to make sure that Mark was on this working group because that's the direction we need to go in. We got the history now. Now let's take this $200,000 that the DOE has given us and let's use it in the right direction and let's have a conversation about how do we make our schools better for all students, for the students that have stayed and for the students that want to come. You're not necessarily thinking about reassigning students the traditional way that we might think about integration. So I only get one vote. They told me that tonight. I was very disappointed. <laughs> Um, but we're going to look at everything. 
And it's not gonna be, you know, we they model District 15, District 15 because that's who that's who done it before. But ours is gonna be totally different because of the people that's at the table. I think four of the people that were at the table, or maybe five, was educated within District 16. I'm excited. See what you come up with. Who else do we have? Hi. Um my name is Ati Bazin. I'm a parent in uh, District 28. <laughs> um, so uh, my- Could you just say where that is? Uh, it's, yes, Forest Hills, New York, in Queens. Um, so my question is actually a piggyback on yours. It was I was gonna ask something similar. I'm just curious to know, because uh, Hannah Jones does talk about uh, um, basically that race and resources are you know, very intertwined. So I think what I'm trying to understand is our uh, district undergoes this process, if uh, the naysayers will allow it, um, is, is an integrated school experience the best resource that you can give to people of color? And is that the, would you say that that might be one of the, the better ways, if I can use that uh, expression, uh, to close the opportunity gap? Anybody? <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say there is, there is a lot of research that suggests that integrated schools are good for everyone, white children, black children, poor children, children who come from wealthier families. Um, I think the way the city is thinking about integration now is, and that hasn't been figured out really, is how do you do that in a way that, um, that communities of color don't lose access um, to schools that they have traditionally had access to and don't become, to use a word that Mark has been using, erased in that process. And I'll be covering District 28's um, saga and I have been in District 15 and District 3 and it's, it's not easy. Um, and just like there's a diversity of opinion in community, white communities about the best way to improve schools as we've seen and heard, same goes in communities of color. Yeah, it, it's difficult because the term integration has so much baggage and I think everyone sort of reacts to it differently. I think that, and you've heard a little bit of it tonight, that black people react to it in a particular way. Like, you know, we need to be next to magical white people in order to, to, uh, to be fully human, right? And uh, I think that the conversation needs to start in a, in a different place than where it started before. And that's why I'm so impressed with, you know, we asked the, com we asked the question to Naquan in one of the episodes, in episode, was it eight? You know, what does, what will this diversity committee look like in District 16? And it was not, the way he answered it was not based on the same assumptions that have gone into um, what we've been talking about when we talk about integration up, up to now. So, you know, I'm impressed with, for instance, if you look at District 15, it, what's impressive is that there are white people who were there who said, you know what, our education is better when we are sitting next to, <laughs> I don't say magical black people, but, <laughs> but this is not about, this is not for the benefit of, th th this is, there's, a, there's a benefit for all of us. Right, and it's not in, it's not in a, it's not in a setting where it's seventy percent white people and ten percent black people. You know, we're just kind of like allowing black people in the door. But when you start with 
you know, I hate to use the word, but just equity on so many levels, which is not really available to us at this point. Like, it's hard for me to really think of a integration setting where people are going to come in in an equitable way. Until we can do that, then we really have to have a different starting point for that conversation. One thing that Nicole says in the podcast is, you know, to the idea that you can throw all these kids and families together and everything will be fine is naive, and I think that's true. Um, and, and, and curriculum is just one part of it, but to go back to what you were saying, Ray, about, about uh, pedagogy, African-centered pedagogy, culturally responsive pedagogy, I, I, my hope is actually that, like, in the, in the runway towards whatever plan is arrived at, like, there will, there will be more of that pedagogy. It's like, okay, if, if, if people are gonna come in, we gotta shore up our defenses. Uh, and one of the pieces of that is, is pedagogy and curriculum. And also things like looking at discipline practices, right, and resources. I mean, right now in the city, we have a group of kids who are suing for access, equal access to sports teams because majority black and Hispanic schools have something like on average 10 fewer sports teams. So. Um, so there are conversations happening beyond just the um, movement of, of students from one school to another. Anyone else out there have questions? Hi. Um, first, thank you for the podcast. We are um, a District 16 family, and it was incredibly illuminating. Um, I think for us, it was really not a choice about where our kid would go to. We wanted him to go to school in our neighborhood. And mostly I wanted him to be surrounded by black people at school. And I didn't want him to have to be in an all-white environment to get an education. And I think that one of the most important things children learn is how to think about themselves. And so it was important for us that our son was surrounded by people like him. In the same vein, I think the, the Ocean Hill-Brownsville episode was really great hearing about the things that went on in that school and kind of thinking, like, wow, I wish we had that now. And then I was really surprised because we're zoned to 308 and we had never really explored Ember because we'd heard negative things about it. And we heard about Ember in the episode and so much of what is taught there, I think, at least for us and what we're looking for, um, is really compelling. And I, I just would like to hear more about, you know, Naquan, I think, you have been not a supporter of Ember, and I know they were trying to open a high school, and, and that didn't go over well, but I'm, I'm curious, is it just because like all charter schools are bad, period? If there's a place where black children can get black education from black educators and be really upheld in the community, shouldn't we support that no matter what it looks like? I just, I would love to hear more of your thoughts about Ember specifically. So, Ember is actually a charter school that we did support. Um, we actually wanted Ember to get their own building within the district. We didn't want them split up between um, the two schools that they are at. Um, when Ember uh, moved to PS262, they needed some wiring done there and the DOE was trying to charge them, and I spoke to the DOE, and we were able to get that wiring done. So we support what we believe makes sense to us, but then Ember had practices that I won't say publicly, but I definitely will speak to you offside, that we don't agree with. And the thing, and I knew this one was gonna actually come up, <laughs> um, my, the, the, the biggest challenge we had was I did not want it to look like this black man is trying to stop this black education. Yeah. 
But what I will say is, I had a conversation with the principal from Ember a couple of days before this all unfolded. And what I said to him was, District 16 CC push hard when we don't want something and we write letters. When we don't write a letter, we let things operate. So we do support. Bella Charter School, I don't know if you ever heard of them. They're, that's another black. So we, they, were, they originally applied for District 16 and they were trying to put them in District 23. We fought for them to stay in District 16 and we secure their space and we're gonna support them when the renewal comes. What happened in the case of Ember is he put us in a tough spot because we're saying no more charter schools, no more expansions, no more, and then he, because he's going back and forth with the regents, he puts out, in the Gotham, he puts a, a story out and say, our local CEC didn't even take a position. And I'm like, dude, like, I just had a conversation with you and we had to then now take a position. So let me be clear, it's not about, we want the best schools for our children and we want parents to have the right to choose where they desire to go. That is not what we're trying to take away from people, but we want to make sure it makes sense for us. But then on the flip side, we have sent a letter to the regions every time there was a charter school renewal hearing and they never listened to us before. So I'll leave you with that. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, it's Antonine from BMC. Did you miss me? I'm back one more time to encourage you as you're making your end of year gifts to think about donating to the Brooklyn Movement Center. As you've heard, we have ongoing campaigns for food justice, tenants' rights, police accountability, and environmental justice. And of course, we want to deepen the impact of school colors in central Brooklyn and throughout New York City. To donate, you can visit schoolcolorspodcast.com and click support. Happy New Year! Hi, um, I'm Rachel. I live in District 20. My kid goes to school in District 15, and I'm a 17-year uh, public high school teacher on the Lower East Side. Um, and I want to thank you um, as a UFT member. It was incredibly important for me to know the details of the history of Ocean Hill Brownsville. So um, just taking in that, like, you know, my union is definitely not always the good guy, um, was really important for me. Um, my question is, like, when I listened to those episodes about community control, um, it was so inspiring. But then when I hear stories about other communities where they do things like, say, we want to splinter off, and we want to have community control in our, our community, and it's sort of like, when, in, when community control is being used to uphold white supremacy, it scares me, right? So how do you guys make sense of the idea of community control when it can be weaponized um, as opposed to used for you know, liberation and justice and equity? It's, it's a great question. And it's one that we raise in the, in the series and don't ever fully reconcile. Um, I mean, you brought up the, the example of perhaps a, a white district that's using it in white supremacist ways, but you can also have a black district doing it in, in weaponizing it and using it for ill as well. So, you know, it's, it's a cliche, but where, when there's power, there has to be some form 
of responsibility. And so what we try to talk about in the series is that can we control, we believe in self-determination, we believe in, but it could also be abused, it could also be exploited, um, and when certain people are in charge, then it can go awry. I mean, we're, that's why so much of this has to be structural, and it can't go, it has to go beyond a particular district. So for instance, Naquan, you know, Ray was asking before, what's the, you know, what hopes do we have for the district? I think a lot of people have a lot of hope in Naquan, but Naquan is one person, right? And the hopes of the district should not rise and fall on one person. And community control should not be represented by one person. Before Naquan, I shouldn't say before, but, you know, until like the last couple of CEC presidents, there wasn't really much of a conversation around community control in the District 16. It almost did not exist, right? So... I don't have an answer for you, only to say that when we try to wrestle community control, the, the hope is that we're doing it, it's being done from the right place. And that's why organizing is important because you always have to have a, uh, a, a valve, uh, some kind of mechanism to check people, to hold them accountable, right? At the end of the day, there's gotta be community control, but there's always gonna be, also has to be community accountability. That's why there's gotta be democracy. So there is a way to, to stop those abuses when they occur. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, uh, I guess that's, you call it, is the, is the poli side term for this like federalism? That's why we have this like different levels. And so like the, you have, I'm spitballing a bit, but because it is a really good question that we wanted to get more into. Um, like, that's why you have the federal or the state government to say, you know, like local localities have all, you know, you get to figure out the details, but, you know, we have this overriding law that says you can't discriminate based on XYZ. And so if you're doing that, then we're going to, you know, you, we'll hold you accountable to the things that you can't do that would be discriminatory. Now, in order for that to work in such a way that community control is able to be exercised by, let's say, black communities, there has to be some acknowledgement and enforcement of the difference in what these communities have been able to do and access for generations and generations and generations, right? Um, it is not the same for a white community to say that we need to have white teachers uh, as it is for a black community to say that we need to have black teachers. Um, if the framework for accountability doesn't account for the difference in those historical experiences, that, that doesn't work. So, um, yeah, that's my answer. So my question is kind of tied to that. To your point, Federalist piece, I think we're seeing that right now play out in national politics with respect to impeachment. Like, despite the unlikelihood that the Senate will pass impeachment, the process needs to still exist. Um, the check and the balance, to your point, the valves, the system. Um, but my question kind of goes a little bit deeper, and I think what I... Your podcast does so beautifully, kind of like the way Tanahasi Coates does, is the case for reparations. You need to understand the history to understand how to change, make productive change. But I think there's something even more um, essential that I don't know if the podcast kind of I mean, it kind of touches on it, um, which is part wrapped up in the school choice debate, is that ultimately, as a parent, you will do and find whatever is the best school for your kid at whatever cost. Um, and so to your larger point, Mark, before about equity as like a starting base, we need to create that in communities that have never seen that um, truly. What is, what is the step forward? Because I think we're seeing pockets of change in D3, D15, now D16, but if that's the core, 
that I'm going to do what's best for my kid no matter what, how can we actually get to an equitable system? Yeah, I'm, I'm disappointed that you didn't think we, we, we got to that. In the, I'm not saying we solved it. But I, I do think it comes back to the culture that you create. And I, you know, I don't want to wax nostalgically, but when I was going to school, that just, we, we, I mean, obviously people were looking out for their own families, right? Um, it would be absurd to say that they did not, and we all looked out for our own kids. But um, I think that now there is a culture that, and we talk about it, where you're, you're essentially encouraging people to throw elbows, to compete against one another, to get, to get over on someone and to game the system, right? That is, that is what I believe came with the whole choice conversation. And so I don't know how you put that genie back in the bottle, but unless you have a, a community culture where people feel like they're, they have some kind of responsibility to one, one another and to other institutions, then there's, that's always gonna prevail. That's all I can, I can come up with. I mean, this question really, um, it, co it comes from a place of scarcity, which is real. Like the system has been set up that way. And I, I think that that makes it a, a question that is much bigger than about the schools. Because the, uh, not to make this about climate change, but I'm gonna make it about climate change because I'm thinking about it all the time, uh, is what Mark described is everybody throwing elbows to get what they need for their own and for their families as the, as, as the, the world that is, I mean, we, it, it actually isn't scarce. There's enough money, obviously, for everybody to have everything, but that's not how it's distributed. Um, but as the, you know, the everything is on fire and underwater, it's going to be uh, increasingly that environment in all aspects of life, and it really freaks me out um, and is something that we have to <laughs> work on. I do think it's interesting, though, to look back at District 15 to your point of putting the genie back in the bottle. So now we have a district where it's all choice for middle schools. You have to apply. The middle schools had these competitive admission standards. So it was hard to, so that were leading to segregated middle schools. And so the solution there was, in an effort to integrate schools, was to still allow parents choice in picking their schools, but to remove the screens and to also put in a mechanism where if you were a student who um, came from a certain background, you would have priority for admission to those schools. And that was sort of the, the happy medium that was struck in trying to still give parents choice, but also acknowledge what that was doing, unfettered choice was doing to the, to the system and to students. Um, and I do think that system <laughs> created the scarcity mentality where you had to get into a couple of schools and people were throwing elbows. Um, but in talking to parents there now, it, it is interesting how quickly perceptions of schools can change once people actually get in the building, um, which happens very rarely. But this new system in District 15 is sort of forcing parents to do that. Um, and you know, no, not everybody will have that experience. And yes, some parents probably left the district, particularly white, more affluent parents. But the first um, year of enrollment numbers show that things are changing. And so as a reporter going to all of these meetings where people are like screaming and like it can often feel very hopeless and like everything is just stuck. 
But I do think what District 15 has done is pretty <coughs> remarkable, and it's early days yet. <laughs> um, but I think it is an example of um, ways to find solutions to these really big problems. Anybody else out there? Hello, good night. Um, I'm new to New York City. I'm from New York, but I taught in Maryland as an eighth grade educator. And I just wanted to get information on how I could get more involved in, I guess, being able to be an asset to, New to what's going on here in New York. Um, I don't teach anymore, but I would like to still be involved. So I guess if you could give general information for how a parent or just anyone who is in the community could get more involved. Sure. Is that music to your ears? I mean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, there's several different ways that you can get involved. Uh, I'm sorry, there's several different ways that you can get involved. I definitely can give you that information soon when I get off this stage so that you can get involved. We, we need, it's definitely in the process for District 16, we want everybody at the table because we want to make sure that we do it right. District 15 did it first. They did it okay. <laughs> we want to do it. You know, so Sorry, Nick, but yeah, I didn't yeah. mean, I didn't mean so, to go talking. But you know, about we we this is what it this is what it's about. And let me just say this: when I came into office, one of the first things we said I said was we were not going to fight against charter schools because I understood that families were choosing charter schools, and it was for a reason. But what I did say is we have to get our traditional schools some time to figure this out. It's no longer because you have a project across the street from you that those students are coming to you. So they had to get some time to figure out how to compete. And that's where we get into this whole elbows. But I say my kids, all my kids did not, they all started in District 16, but there were programs in District 16 that we didn't have. So my son will be graduating from TU Town Unlimited in District 2. You know, my daughter went to District 13 Urban Assembly for Math and Science for Young Women, an all-girls school. But now we have an all-girls school, but it's a charter school. So, you know, and nothing against charter, but I'm a traditional public school parent. So those are the kind of things that we need to think about when we're, when we're looking at this. And, I, you know, I just wanted to clear it up for anything that it wasn't about that. It was about people use choice as a, a, a way to get around certain things. But we could do very well with traditional public schools if we all come together and demand that change. And no, it's not all about one person because what we're doing now is transitioning for the next leader. Um, and the CCs can't move because you know people say, what you did to Ember, no, six of us voted to do that. I can't move unless six, five other people move with me. And I wanna just say that, so it's, it's consensus. If, you want, if you're looking to do citywide work, um, there's the Alliance for Quality Education, which is uh, pushing the state to make good on the, I don't $1.4 billion that it owes this, this, the schools um, and has owed for more than a decade. Um, and there's an, also the Coalition for Educational Justice, whose director, Natasha Capers, was on the podcast. And they have a big campaign right now around um, culturally responsive education. And and if and if integration is your is your thing, there's the Alliance for School Integration and Desegregation. I think just one more question over here, if that's okay. Last question of the night. No pressure. Make it a good one. The last question of the night was off mic and hard to understand on the tape. But here's what the audience member said. 
I feel that you could have gone a little deeper with policy because dealing with the situation in Bed-Stuy is a microcosm of a lot of things that are going on across the city. Policy comes from the state and curriculum comes from the state. So where can we actually make change happen? And if you had to change things, where would you start and what would you start with? It's a simple question. Um, I, I, I will say that, I mean, I think you raise a fair point. It's something that we struggled with a lot, right? And particularly with episode eight, we were struggling with, okay, do we make this just all, do we start just whipping out the answers here? Um, one, we didn't because we don't have all the answers. And two, we also wanted to tell a story and we didn't want to turn it into something that was too prescriptive, to be quite honest with you. So some of it was a creative choice, actually, that, that we made. But we did, I mean, if you listen to eight, we do, we do point to things. Like, so for instance, the, what do we call it, the five? The, the five R's. The five, the five R's that we talk about there. I mean, it's not exactly policy, but it is a way of thinking about things in a structural fashion that I think address a lot of these um, questions here. And yeah, I mean, with the, I don't want to fall back on the excuse, oh, we're, we're just reporters, we're just, you know, country journalists. Um, <laughs> that's not the case. I mean, we have thought about policy, but a lot of this is where we're really trying to, we're struggling to figure this out, and we didn't want to just try to, you know, say that there are any easy answers, because I think if you, you learned anything through this is that there's not any one, two, three, or even 12 policies that are going to address all these issues. And I, I mean, I, 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 you know, all the, the it's a, it is about power, right? The podcast is about race, class, and power, and power is, it's, it's shrouded in fog, um, over the over all the details of how this stuff works, and it's purposefully so, right? So that we can intervene in it. Um, you know, we tried to pull back. Uh, I'm mixing my metaphors now, but tried to pull back some of that fog uh, as best we could. But um, you know, like school finance is a black hole. Um, school construction is a black hole. Um, exactly what parts of like how much freedom schools have to set their own curriculum, and what you know what what the state agencies have to do with. I mean, it's it's not. It, it, the fir I mean, the first step is like, can we make all this stuff like really easy to understand? <laughs> you know, this what we've done is a, is a, like a first step in that direction. But to, to demystifying all this really, I mean, listen, education is 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 it the it's the largest state budget item by far, and it's massive. Um, so there's a, there's a lot. On that note, uh, I think we're gonna have to leave it there because our permit is uh, expiring. So. I want to say thank you to everyone for your thoughtful questions. Thank you to all of you for giving your time and your thank you and to the audience. Can I, can I just say this is corny as hell, but really, thank you for listening because we didn't have a broad corporate platform with which to do this, and the only reason that this is resonating is because you're out there listening and you're spreading the word. So thank you. School Colors is written and produced by Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman. This bonus episode was edited by Max Friedman. Music, as always, by Every R. Young and the Deacon Board. Special thanks to Christina Vega, Amy Zimmer, and Carrie Malago at Chalkbeat New York. Robin Lester Kenton, Nyla Rosario, and Greg Richards at the Brooklyn Public Library, and everyone who came out to the event and asked such great questions. 
And of course, it's never too late to tell your friends and your colleagues and students and parents and anyone else you know about School Colors. We're on every podcast app and at schoolcolorspodcast.com. The track you're listening to right now is called Colleen's Joint. And one thing I realized is that you've never actually gotten to hear it all the way through. So enjoy the music, have a happy holidays, and see you in the new year. Peace. Peace.